I'm just wondering about nose breathing. Does that not, did they hear that? That gives it that richness. <laughs> okay, maybe not Andy's. <laughs> I like the wheeze. That doesn't even sound reasonable. Are you serious? This message sucks. Stinks. <laughs> Gosh, the pain. I can't even describe how sore I was. Welcome to the club of the initiated man. About then, I knew I was in serious trouble. You know, do something, do, do something. anything, but just don't sit there. Hey, don't you have something better to do? You've stumbled on the Invisible Humanitarian Podcast from Prince Edward Island on the east coast of Canada where we discuss hiking, culture, life, theology, running, stories, West Africa, books, you name it, all from an East Coast of Canada perspective. Welcome to the journey. All right, we're back to the Invisible Humanitarian Podcast from Prince Edward Island on the East Coast of Canada. And uh, we, bu- well, boy, do we have some rascals around the table today. Uh, we have uh, uh, Tom Marshall from the Two Bird Dogs Podcast that uh, we featured before, my little uh, theological uh, inquisitive. Uh, he's the guy that answers all the questions about life, meaning, and being. Or we just sit here. Or we just sit here and drink coffee and tell jokes. And then we also have another school buddy who incidentally, uh, also was a school buddy, uh, in theology training, uh, at the college. We're sitting at Maritime Christian College today where Tom is teaching and where Milton graduated as a student. It's not his only degree. He's uh, got a degree in social work. He had a degree in music. He did a little bit of nurse. He, he's done everything. And, uh, he, he worked with, uh, or worked with me in West Africa. Actually, he was one of the guys instrumental in recruiting my wife and I to work in West Africa. And, uh, now he's... He's back in Canada, has been here probably about 15 years back from his uh, West African uh, tour, and uh, and he's living in Edmonton. So Milton Clark is his name, and he's at the table. And Milton, we're glad to have you. Thank you very much. Good yeah. to see you. So we got a story, man. You, you were telling us that when you worked uh, overseas that you used to get confused for like a 60-year-old man when you were like, yeah, like your mid-20s. Well, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was one of these situations where they thought that, uh, in, in Ivory Coast or whatever, that, uh, that most white people looked alike and it was hard to tell the difference. So it's true though. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's just familiarity, right? It takes, it takes time because they, they, they used to make, when I arrived, they used to mix you and I up because we both wore glasses. We had short hair and they weren't used to seeing skin tone difference on white people. Just like, like when we arrived in Africa, it's not a racist thing. There, there was no. different shades uh, and they oh, could yeah. tell what part of West Africa somebody was from by, by yeah. the, by the skin tone, right? Uh-huh. Oh, oh, he's at Burkina Bay or whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you moved to Ivory Coast with your wife and, uh, I remember, uh, uh, you played an awful dirty trick on me one time. Dirty trick. Yeah. You wouldn't do anything like that. I wouldn't do something no, like that. No, not at all. My buddy, yeah. No. It was a, it was one of those linguistic things with the newcomer that you just, you suck me in like hook, line and sinker. Yeah. And, uh, anyway, this, 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 this lady was quite enamored with my red hair because remember albinos are, they always used to be the chiefs and the king and ye king's automatic wife, right? Uh-huh. Because albinos, uh, with the white skin pigmentation and uh, red hair. And I had that red hair, I guess. And, uh. But anyway, she came over and she was shaking my hand and looking me over a little too <laughs> intently for that culture and area. And she Great A Canadian prime beef. Oh yeah. She looked at me and said something and I didn't understand what she said. So she looked at you. 
she and did. she said, uh, you know, why is he here? And and what I heard you say was, he came here with his wife and children, or his wife to, and, and children, and to have children or something, and to work here. And she looked at me and said, is that true? And I said in French, we say Ray, yes, it's true. And she grabbed my arm and started her hand and started rubbing my arm, <laughs> and uh, and I and Milton is near falling on the floor laughing, <laughs> and uh, the, the 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 Africans are near rolling in the dirt uh, yeah. off the. So she found a new husband, eh? Yeah, and what he had actually said was that he came here to look for a wife to have children, and it, and then and then I was quite horrified, and then I said to her, "No, I already have a wife," and she said, "That's okay." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, there you yeah, go. <laughs> yeah, in the polygamous land, one wife is not a problem, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. So, how do you explain that, uh, honey? Guess what? <laughs> I went to the market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but see, the interesting. thing thing, like the legality of that in Ivory Coast, it wasn't actually the official policy or law of the country no. anymore, um, but it was, but because it was the tradition, um, you know, the Annie, there, the, the Annie had a few interesting proverbs around relationships. Do you remember a few of those? No, I don't. Uh, sleep with how many feet? Do you remember that sleep, one? Yeah. You told four me that feet one. or something? Yeah. Two yeah. toes up or? Yeah. Yeah. Sleep with four feet. Do you remember what they meant by that though? Uh, sleep with four feet, just to being together with somebody in the bed. You mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah it was it was an, an evening greeting that yeah. uh, when you left, sleep with four feet, because in that yeah. culture, yeah, uh, you know, to sleep alone was just just unheard of, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and if if a guest came in the village, uh, in, this would be older history, not in mm-hmm. modern times so much. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, if you needed somebody to uh, to make sure you had four feet there. They, they would, would provide it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so yeah, you know, it's it, it was a different culture uh, than maybe we were used to. So different time, that's for sure. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So how many years were you in Africa? Uh, I think it was nine. Okay. Nine years. First yeah. exposure to Africa. How did that happen? Well, through the senior missionary Lou Cass was his name. The fellow that they confused me for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, how old was Lou Cass? Uh, Lou was probably in his 50s at the time, late 50s, early 60s, something like that. And you were, what, 30? Yeah, I would have gone over at 28, I think, and maybe it it was closer to 30. Mm -hmm. But so anyway, and of course I'm fairly tall and and large, and Lou was quite... Petite detail. Yeah, he wasn't very Small stature. Oh, really? Yeah, so... So you were easily (coughs) confused with Lou? Well, I couldn't imagine why, but yes, it seems that we were, they would say, now which one is that? And So, so, so he, uh, he encouraged you to come. Uh, he was working in he Ivory did. Coast, West Africa, Abidjan, I believe is where he settled first, and yeah. uh, you joined him. I remember you telling me at one point you had some interesting experience living in Abidjan in the early days. It was a growing, like we're talking, what, a little over 1.2 million people in the city oh, and yeah. growing rapidly at that time. A lot of people yeah. come from the rural areas yeah. and traffic was congestion and, you know, it, it markets and stuff on the street were, mm-hmm. you know, pretty basic, even for a capital city, uh, mm. in a lot of places there. But, uh, you were telling me one time you had an interesting episode at night with an umbrella. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was early on. Yeah. There was, uh, some thieves came to the house. I think there was probably three or four of them to break in and their normal way of getting in because they have a lot of anti-theft bars and things like that there to deter thieves. But, uh, if they found a wooden door, they would try to break it open. And so that's what they were doing when 
the middle of the night, and my wife woke me up and said, there's somebody banging down the door. So wow. I went out, and uh, there, we had no weapons of any kind. Of course, we weren't. N- not anything the... we're going to mention on air. Yeah. <laughs> not that the that you couldn't well, buy them. you do, but. Uh, no, I no, I'm just saying not that you could, could yeah. not that they weren't available if you yeah. wanted one, right? Uh, strictly legal and according to the laws oh, yeah. of the country and like, yeah. you know, the right. proper paperwork for the Russian AK-47, if you wanted, it came with it when you bought it on the street, right? <laughs> That's right. So, anyway, we had, what I had was an umbrella. That's all that was there. So I grabbed the umbrella and they were banging on the one side saying, ouvre le port, you know, and I was yelling on the other side, va-t'en, and hitting the door with the umbrella. And uh, I think that they must have thought, whoever was on the lookout uh, must have thought the umbrella was a weapon. Mm. And so they took off. They took off, just suddenly left. They were just inches from getting in. Mm-hmm. Um, but they took off and ended up robbing a neighbor instead. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, when they're out to, out to do it, Tom, they, they don't stop they're, at they're your house. Gonna go if it fails there, it's not done for the yeah. night. It's just, it's just, where's, where do we go next? Yeah. Where yeah. they don't have a gun. So they went across the road and, and unfortunately the night guard there was not overly, uh, brave, I guess. And so when they sm- banged on his door, he opened it. So right. that let them in and. Yeah. Yeah. That happened to us up in a Bengru there. Uh, some people came all dressed in black looking over the gate at our guardian. And we, of course we had, uh, our guard dog, which was a Doberman pincer, mm-hmm. uh, breeded by, by some Americans in the country mm-hmm. and they gave, gave her to us. And, uh, mm-hmm. and anyway, he saw them and he, he picked up his little, well, it's not a sword, but you know what I mean? A knife he's from Mali mm-hmm. and he was ready. And, uh, and he said they, they, they ducked back down off the, off the gate. And, and anyway, you started hearing whistles blowing about, uh, you know, probably maybe a half a kilometer away and they got in there and, and broke in, broke in there and mm-hmm. tied up the garden, beat him up and robbed that place instead. But, yeah. Now, yeah. would they harm people if they're breaking in or are they just trying to grab stuff and go? I guess it would depend on the people. Some were more malicious than others. There was one dentist that came from, I can't remember where in the States, but yeah, he was there and they met him downtown at the bank, held him at gunpoint when he came out of the bank Jumped in his four by four. Pajero or something, Mitsubishi or something like that. And they drove out into the bush and uh, stripped him off and stole his car, held a gun to his head, you know, pretended. I think they did the game where, oh, is there a bullet in the chamber thing? Yeah. So he was very traumatized by that. But I think most of the time, if you just give them what they want, they'd probably just take it and go. Right. Yeah. I remember, even though we had the same guards that were quite fearless, they were from a group of a tribe in Mali called the, they were the Bella, and they guarded the markets, and they were kind of known for being ruthless with the criminals. So if the criminals knew who they were, they would usually avoid them. But uh, I always told them if they get in or they want in and they have guns, you let them in. Yeah. And don't try to stop them. They had a belief, actually, that they were bulletproof. I don't know if Andy knew that or not. Yeah, I I heard that. Yeah, they believed that if they had their, they had a certain stick that they carried with them of hardwood. They had that stick. They were bulletproof. Yeah, and the, the, the stick had kind of like a little knob on the end too. Yeah, they, they would used it as a weapon. Oh, oh yeah. a crusher skull. That was what it was designed yeah, for. It was a tribal, right. uh, an ethnic thing, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, that's what I did is just told them, you know what, nobody's, uh, nothing we have is worth somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they need one in and they have guns, you let them in. Right. Uh, he proposed to his wife in, uh, on a lagoon. I did. In, uh, in West Africa. Wanted oh, to, yeah. You want to tell a little, just a little bit of that story? Uh, I could, I guess, if I yeah. can remember the details. I All was kind of out of She wore a time. dress of blue. No, red. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what she was wearing. But you no. were looking into her eyes yeah. instead. Yeah, the deep eyes of yeah, love. It does it every time, especially <laughs> in Africa. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the lagoons could be a little stinky sometimes, but... Uh, uh, kind of like low tide in Atlantic yeah, Canada. that's right. There you go. <laughs> the lovely <laughs> smell of the ocean. Oh, wow. Is that uh, sulfur? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that was where I met my wife and... Uh, and you met uh, her in Africa? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, she. I went. To, I went over as a single guy. Really? And, and, yeah, and lived with that senior missionary family, Lou yeah. and Vita Cass. Yeah. And then. Um, so what? What was she doing in Africa? She came for the summer, uh, to. Yeah, Lou recruited her. Yeah. Yeah, to come do a little medical work. Yeah, or she was just coming for a month uh, to do. Right. Yeah, and <laughs> and that's all she did stay for. She was just there for the month. Okay. But during that time, we. We we were engaged, so it was a very quick engagement. Then she went Holy back, cow. back to her work as an ER doc in Montreal. Yeah, and uh, and then we met at so that would have been in the summer, and in in December we met here on Prince Edward Island to marry. So yeah. Wow! Be- between Christmas and New Year's, yeah. and, and they so you got a scratch. She took some peroxide, poured it on there, watch it fizzled up, and then all of a sudden there I was, was in love. love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the girl for me. If she can treat a wound and do triage like that, that's my lady. <laughs> so, uh, so you ended up moving to the interior eventually, and uh, yeah. uh, about two hundred and twenty kilometers up from the the coast uh, in the capital yeah. city, and uh, anyway, settled in there. And uh, hmm. you, you guys ended up buying. A an old Peugeot, mm-hmm. an old uh, house from a, far- a French pharmacy person, yeah, that's right. and they—that's—that's uh, that's where you kind of based for your medical work with your wife and stuff there. Mm-hmm. But you—you you were also uh, she. She told you some stories of the good old days of what it was like to live up there before the road started. Do you remember her telling some? Uh, you want to share a few of those? But having to, to drag the cars to a sled with skitters on the low muddy spots and stuff. You don't remember telling me that? No. Oh man, you your you, you, your memory's getting. Oh, you mean like going out to the village? Or <clears throat> no, no, going down to Abidjan. They used they used to when the, before the highway. They used to fly from Bengaluru down to uh, okay. to Abidjan in the early days. No, but you know. that was the road was there. Yeah, no, no, I know it was there, but it was very muddy. It wasn't the greatest road. They used to uh, drive cars up in into these like like a bobsleigh, and they could drive through. Kind of like Prince Edward Island in well, winter. Yeah, that's yeah. the way it was for my dad in the '60s. But no, I yeah. I don't remember that, Andy. I think not. I no, not for you. For the for the lady, the pharmacician, uh, that oh, place yes, that you I'm bought. Oh yeah, sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I'm not talking about our time. She she yeah. was telling you what it was like because she'd been there back from the early '50s, '60s, or whatever. Right. And yes. and life in a Bengaluru was radically different, yeah, right? That's right. Her yeah. husband was the first pharmacist. And, yeah. yeah. And and do you remember how long? I don't remember how long she said it used to take to get to the capital city uh, in those days, but. But there was bogs on the, even on the main road where they would just have like a big log skitter, like mm. those gigantic ones for the rainforest trees. Mm. And they would drag the cars on this wagon, like this sleigh mm-hmm. through the, the muddier parts and stuff. And, yeah. uh, you know, quite a radical time. 
Wow. Yeah. What a mess. <clears throat> yeah. Well, um, if, or, uh, you know, we're at Tom's school here, um, yeah. we, there might be students, you know, of, of, of his classes that are interested in working overseas. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, how, how did you, uh, you know, how did you feel when you, when you first, uh, went to Africa? Did, like, was, was it, uh, did you find it a crushing challenge early on? Did you thrive on, on the adventure? Um, you know, yeah. should the, should these students be tepid and afraid of, of going? Because, you know, we kind of started telling things about a uh, theft and robbery. Well, yeah. that's, that's all. Bringing on not, the robberies. Yeah, that's not obviously the normal <laughs> experience of every day in Africa. Yeah, but right? you could find your wife. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, yes, you could. Yeah. could Go to uh, Africa, find your wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it happens for some, some hard people. up people yeah. who can. Yeah. <laughs> or a second wife, in the case of Andy. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, <laughs> I don't, no, I, I don't advise it. So, so how did you find your experience? Uh, did you find it a stressful experience when you first arrived? A lot of people talk about culture shock and whatever else. What's your yeah. thought on that? How did you feel about it? Well, I personally remember being on the airplane heading for Africa, just being fearful about one thing, which was, would I love the people? Would I naturally love them? And uh, so I was obviously asking God to give me a love Mm -hmm. for the people so that I wasn't just sort of there for my own reasons, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, And he did, and I never actually had that problem of feeling like it was a big burden or mm-hmm. I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the variety, yeah, the food, the people, the, yeah, the experiences. Life. So, so what's the nastiest thing you've ate? Oh, I've eaten many nasty things. Some that I know about, some I didn't even know about <laughs> until after. Yeah, they get you later. Yeah. What would you say is the most delicious dish that you've had there? Oh, Gosh, that's a really good question. Uh, I would say um, alico is one of the good ones, which is like a fried plantain banana. It's mm-hmm. like a it's a street food. Yeah, but it's a it's a snack, and it's very nice. It's very tasty. And and, and the banana is basically black and it is. mushy. It's, yeah, it's, it's like a rotten. way rotten, and yeah. there's mold on the peel. Yeah. Outside. So yeah. it's a very, very over-ripened, soft, mushy plant. So it has banana. lots of flavor? Yeah, sugary, sweet. Very sweet. Yeah. It's, uh, so how do they fry it? They just chop it up and they throw it in boil, boiling oil. and uh, Palm oil. Yeah. Until it gets a little crunchy on the outside. and Yeah, it's quite good. Yeah. That's good. So uh, fried and sweet all together. Yeah. Yeah, and they had some good peanut sauces and different different sauces. Some of them I didn't care for. Sauce long long was like a gumbo sauce, which you might have encountered in the states. Yeah, um, I didn't prefer that with well, the okra. It was kind of like we call it, we always Ooh, called okra. it snot sauce because we ate with it. Well, they would eat with <laughs> our hands and didn't, but when you even went on a fork when you picked it up, this mm-hmm. long stringy syrupy thing. Yeah. Stuck and it would hang 10 inches or Boy, more. Give me some of that. Yeah. And you put it in your mouth and this, the slimy balls in there and you got to, got to work, work her down and, mm-hmm. and swallow it. That doesn't sound good. Yeah. yeah. But you've okay. had pangolin. Uh, you you want to oh, tell yeah. the listeners what pangolin is? I'm trying to remember it. I know it's, it's a wild meat. Armadillo. Yeah, yeah. Armadillo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've had, I've had that. I've had, uh. I think I've had lots of different meats. So what's armadillo comparable to? Everyone always says it tastes like chicken, does it? Uh, no, I think it's a little stringier than yeah. chicken. I, I don't know. Very what. stringy, and and you got to do a lot of chewing to yeah, get, get the stringy. It's like a jerky. I've had some oh. bear meat, and I think it's uh, 
like the taste wouldn't be the same, but the t- the consistency, the toughness, and right. the, and the stringiness of it uh, might be similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember a, a gooty. A gooty. You've had a gooty. Yeah. It's like a grass cutter. And uh, yeah. and uh, uh, what was the one that climbed up the tree, screaming up and on its way down the? Um, uh, ha- it's a hyrax. Is what it is okay. in English. I forget yeah. what they called it over mm-hmm. there. Sounded like a screaming woman. Do you remember we were in Ebelisukro the first time I heard one of those, mm-hmm. and uh, and we we're in the middle of a meeting. I mean, like like this is forty some kilometers in the bush, and we're out there for for the night and mm-hmm. you know for two days, and uh, and I swore that somebody was beating on a woman out in the bush. Right. Like I I'm saying, oh, there's somebody's raping a woman out there. Mm-hmm. That, and no joking aside, like my untrained ears to Africa, mm-hmm. right? And I and I interrupted you in the meeting and I said, I said, Milton, what's going on? Somebody's beating on a woman. He goes, No, no, it's not a woman, that's an animal. And I'm listening. And it's like, that ain't no animal. You're you're crazy. And, uh, but anyway, there's the Doppler effect. They're way up in the trees, tall, high, hundred and some feet. Mm-hmm. And then when they crawl down at night to feed, going down to the ground, they do this scream. And, and because they're going down and, and they scream at a different level every time, the sound reverberates and changes and, and, uh, anyway, and, and it come to find out it was this animal anyway. And then after a while, you know, I was like you with some time, mm-hmm. you just don't even hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So civet. Civet, yeah. You've had civet before? Yeah. yeah. We've had that in the bush together. I remember that. Yeah. Snails. Uh, yeah. The indigenous to to that area Mm -hmm. of Africa, there's a forest snail, um, probably about the size of a really large grapefruit. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're only indigenous to the area. A snail the size of a grapefruit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they're clean. Like they live in, live in in the forest and, uh, and they go out and hunt them. They're crawling around in their act. Mm -hmm. They commit of hiding at night and uh, you're driving down the road in the morning. People who find them are holding them up on a string. They'll have like three or four of them. There's a, but uh, when I say a great, sorry, a grapefruit, I, you know, like I'm talking a giant snail here. This is no small snail. Like this is a meal for a family and one snail in the sauce. Mm -hmm. I've never, wow. Yeah. And, uh, mm. uh, uh, there's, uh, also the beach. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, like, like a, a deer, like a little yeah. tiny gazelle. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, uh, I remember in Abungwa, uh, we stayed at that, uh, uh village elders place. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one time I, I just decided, uh, you know, I need to bring a gift and, and, uh, these hunters were on the side of the road holding a beach and, uh, they had the gray ones and a red one, which the red ones are rare. I, you know, I didn't know that. I, I know I hadn't seen many of them, but. But anyway, they, uh, I stopped and I said, I want a red one and I want a, a gray one. And I negotiated the price and big fight broke out on the road because a guy agreed to it and I put them in the truck and then another guy walked along and he said, I'm not accepting that. And it's like, the guy already shook my hand and agreed on it, which in Africa means it's a done deal. And then everybody just said, you go, that's not your problem. We accepted this. And, uh, off I went to the village and uh, I thought, you know, like a Westerner, right? So you give one to the chief and one to the village elder who hosted us where we'd stay at night. And of course, as a Westerner, if you had a smaller one and a bigger one, you would think, give the bigger one to the chief, right? Right. And, uh, and I said, I want to take this big one over to the chief. Oh no, 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 no. You can't do that. I said, why? Well, I want to give, I want to give it to him. No, no, you have to take the red one. And I said, I don't want to take the red one because it, it's, it's too small. I want, I want to give the big one to my chief or to the chief and the smaller one to my host. And he said, no, no, the red ones are always for the chief. He said, the red ones are rare and they're, they're more honorable to get a red one. So don't, don't you dare take that gray one over there. We'll take the red one over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so yeah, you kind of learn about that. So, mm-hmm. whoa, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, 
getting back on the, on the stress, uh, about going over, I know a lot of, uh, uh, when you're reading mission books and car or, or, you know, international worker books, there's a lot of people seem to really hype up the cross cultural, um, uh, stress, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, the culture shock. And, and I was kind of like you, like, I, I know I never sensed that mm-hmm. so much in you, like, like even when you had a new experience in Africa, you just mm-hmm. took it as an adventure, uh, a learning experience mm-hmm. or whatever. And, uh, but, uh, do you, do you think that some of these books now I know, I know people can have a legitimate cross cultural, uh, um, uh, challenge, right? Mm-hmm a culture shock, but, uh, but do you think generally that's overplayed in books? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think it depends on your attitude going. So, uh, for example, now, nowadays it's much more common to go for short term missions. And if you go for a short term, I think you're, you have less preparation. You're not in it for the long haul. So you may not have the the determination. So that's my take on it is that people that go to be there for their new place to live, they, they go with the expectation there's going to be a lot of adjustments and that that's okay. Yeah. Whereas I think the person that goes for the short term is like, it's more of an experience for them. Yeah. It's experiential, uh, experiential mission work kind of thing. And so I don't think they have the resilience because you know, and it may even be that they're a different kind of person than the person that would agree to go for the long term. Like I know when I went to Africa, yeah. uh, I did not plan. It wasn't that I thought I would die there. I just didn't plan to come back. I had no plans to come back to Yeah, North that America. wasn't even a uh, right. topic of discussion. Yeah, I was going yeah. there to live and that was going to be where I was. Yeah. I do find that when we moved up here, you know, we got permanent resident status. Like we didn't, there was no mm-hmm. trial. It was, yeah. we're moving because we wanted our kids to be educated, to have French. Yeah. Um, and it was, see, you see other people come for like the two year, or the four year. It's like a waste of time. It's a lot of paperwork and, mm-hmm. and it's just like, they're not going to be here. So why invest? Yeah. And, and that, and that, and the very fact that they would just get a, a temporary work permit versus a more permanent resident things is probably an indicator that they're not going to be here in two years or four years. Exactly. Time. Well, yeah. or that they want the option not to be. Right? Yeah. That they're. Well, so it's, 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 it, it, it could be the, uh, the excuse they need at the time for saying, oh, I'm sorry. I don't, you know, my time's up. I've got to yeah. go. I mean, I think it's a general thing in our society where commitment is, is becoming increasingly anxiety provoking for people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they can commit, but for how long? So they they always kind of give themselves a way out. Yeah. yeah. Well, in short, uh, the idea of short-term change, because I remember your, like your mentor, Lou and Vida, the, uh, uh, that you stayed with in Abidjan, they, they moved up to a Bengaroo too, where we were, and they were there for a short time when we first came. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember having a conversation with them early, early one morning in the dark about, uh, how the definition of short-term t- changed. And, and they said when, when we were on the mission field, like and of course they had been what, like about seven different countries over their oh, career. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, she said, uh, for them short, a short term missionary family was seven years. That was what short term mission was considered mm-hmm. when they went to the field and uh, a family would come, you know, and, and at the five year mark, they'd bail or whatever, because that would be the, the mentality is that mm-hmm. they bailed at five years yeah. and the talk among the internationals was, you know, well, it, well, isn't it, isn't it too bad that got discouraged and gave up so quickly? You know, five years in or six mm-hmm. years in, but short-term mission then mm-hmm. was considered seven years and uh, as an yeah. international worker. So, so our definitions and our commitment levels have definitely changed for sure. 
But what I remind people too is, uh, is, is there, is cro- a lot of things that we uh, call, uh, uh, culture shock is in cultural sh- culture shock. It, you know, you can have, you can have, uh, 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 stress, like a culture of stress because you don't know how to read this and you're not sure about it and you're confused about it or whatever. But, uh, but one of the things I remind people is when they go over for short term is don't even bother talking about culture shock. And uh, the reason for that is, is, is they'll have some cultural stress, but they're not going to be there long enough to, to actually develop what we would consider culture shock. Um, it usually hits at about the seven to eight month mark. Uh, it depends, like some people get hit it as early as six months, but seven or eight months there before you really start hitting that wall. Because when the culture shock comes on, I think is when, when you're there enough, uh, that you're learning enough to realize how much you don't know, you're still struggling with the language. Mm-hmm. And you, and then you're looking at what you're trying to do. You're trying to get things going and maybe, maybe some things are going well and some, some things on your new work and new project mm-hmm. you're trying to do aren't because you're figuring it all out. It's new. And then, and then you just, you just come home one day and you, and you sit in your office or in your living room and you go, you're going to say, oh my gosh, I, 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 I signed a contract to be here for five more years. Mm-hmm. I think that's when the, I think that's when the cross-cultural mm-hmm shock and uh, stuff comes in. And yeah. And I think in, <laughs> in your case, like, you know, I would say I had an advantage that you didn't have. And that was that I went when I was single. Mm-hmm. So I had, I didn't have a family. I didn't have all the family responsibilities and things you had to think of. Plus I had the permission to be like my first year there was just to learn the language. So I was a learner and not expected to produce anything. And so it gave me freedom that I think Andy didn't feel uh, because he didn't have that opportunity to go. Like I went to the university in Abidjan. That's where I studied French until they... They had a, a little coup. To yeah, they had a, it was called Le Nez Blanche, which just yeah. means that it's a whitewash. And, uh, the they, university they closed the university. They were burning buses and looting classrooms. Ooh, wow. And yeah. so they didn't think it was safe and I agree. And so anyway, then I ended up, uh, going to France to complete that. So that, I think that that is huge, like giving giving yourself permission to be a learner, mm-hmm. like w- regardless of whether it's Tom, you coming here to Canada, I mean, right. it, it, it's a similar culture, but it's not the same culture. It's not like well, my, I came for a summer, uh, a summer and it was really at the end of the summer that I had my kind of culture shock. I was just, I couldn't wait to get home. But like when I came the second time to actually live, my wife had never been to Canada. So for for her, it was, for me, it was just, well, I have a job and you just do your thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I was just thankful they didn't have cisterns here like they did in Ontario because <laughs> you could flush the toilets more. Yeah. Because <laughs> in Ontario, in this oh. one area where I was, they had a cistern and they didn't flush very much. And so it was oh, just wow. a unique little experience where, you know, going back home, I'm thinking, wow, they don't have proper. <laughs> well, they're, they're, they actually do. <laughs> we're, we're, I, if I, if I know where you were that when they drill there, they don't get water, they get gas. Yeah. So, so they have to have surface water oh, right. trapped in cisterns because yeah. uh, they get gas if you go down anywhere. Because so. there definitely was natural gas. Yeah. But I will say living, you know, I've, I've lived in Canada since 97 mm-hmm. and I find culture shock back in the States. For me, that's a culture shock. Yeah. And, yeah. That, and that's what I would identify yeah. as my 
my first experience where I realized I was having culture shock is in Canada. Was when I came back. Well, we we were yeah. funded uh, partly. The medical work was funded from Indiana. Yeah. Uh, from well, actually, it was funded from Indiana and Kentucky, and so. Uh, when we came back on our first furlough, that's where we landed. We landed in, in, in we were in Indianapolis, and I can't remember the name of the church, but they had a they had a, a big church, but they had a, a little manse there, mm-hmm. and the manse um, was it was a terrible area. It was a gang area yeah. and things like that. At one time, it was a nice spot. It was a, a, yeah. a nice spot at one time. I can't remember what the congregation's name was, but. Very friendly, very kind, and they did. They gave this house to any missionaries that were coming yeah. through. They would let them stay there. But I came from Africa, where we had bars on our windows, and uh, you know we had security guards. We had a big wall that the they would have to come over the wall to get to the security guards to get right. through the Doberman to then get to the <laughs> to the anti theft bars, and you know we it was like. Basically, we locked ourselves up at night. Well, well, you had to. You had a pharmacy with all kinds of drugs, right? So yeah. you, you were in a unique we situation there. We were a high there. target. Yeah. For, we yeah. were right. definitely a lucrative Whereas target. our house wasn't wasn't no, the same thing. Just, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so in Indianapolis, you just had the door. So we just had the door, and it was super hot whenever we landed there. So, so that you sounds had like to have summer. the windows open. So I remember running out to... Uh, uh, electronics shop of some kind and getting personal uh, motion detectors and I set them up by the windows because I was like, I don't feel safe. Somebody could just climb right through that window. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and then the other shock was when we went into the supermarket and there was an aisle that was absolutely filled with different kinds of breakfast cereal. Yeah. And you know in a- in Africa. A, I don't, well, you could get it. You could get box cereal in in Abidjan that was imported, but otherwise we just ate porridge or we ate, you know, local from scratch food. So we yeah. didn't. There was there was none of that. And when I got back, and it was like, oh my goodness, there's you know a hundred different kinds of cereal here. Yeah. What do I pick? Yeah. And I was I was. Uh, yeah, you stand there for like ten minutes because I did. you can't make the we decision. We actually left. I didn't ever choose yeah. one because I was yeah. so overwhelmed by the choice. Yeah. Right. And so yeah, that was kind of yeah. Mine yeah. is uh, it, it's it's going on now just because. You know, I when I left, I I was a certain persuasion politically, and I come back and and that party's not the same anymore, yeah. and that's weird. Yeah. And the other culture shock that I I noticed was you know living in Canada as an outsider, it's like, boy, the news media really is biased on this particular yeah. angle, and then I then it struck me. No, wait a second. That means then if Canada is biased in there, because each country has their own. Mm-hmm. take mm-hmm. well then why wouldn't america have that bias <laughs> and then all of a sudden you start looking at your own country and like holy cow and now it's you know even mm-hmm. more so it's it's like almost two separate realities that are going on you're like mm-hmm. i don't fit anywhere yeah well and that i think that's the thing for all of us that have tra- like like you who travel overseas it's coming home and readjusting to home yeah it's like is, somehow is, was the harfarter you battle. left and everyone went off on a tangent like yeah i understand like your high school buddies you leave and you go different ways and they're completely different but mm-hmm. i didn't expect all of culture to change mm. to that extent yeah yeah. I mean, that was my shock. 
So, uh, so people decide to come. Um, I, I think, I think, uh, uh, I, I, I think the, the most critical time is those early days. So don't, don't maybe don't go to the field, uh, or, or enter into a new country with, with the idea, oh, I'm going to be stressed. And I, I read about culture shock in a book, so I'm going to be ready for it. I, I say, forget about that. You go there with the attitude, I'm going to enjoy these people. I'm going to go right up to my eyeballs and, and you know, and enjoy, immerse myself in this language among these people. And I'm going to chat and make a fool of myself with this language. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to greet people. And I'm just going to be as kind a person as I can, because I'm the guest here and I I want to be a gracious mm-hmm. guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the things I, I would challenge people to do when they go, because uh, I, I remember one uh, one work that I'm familiar with um, in the area where I worked. Um, so somebody or somebody else, uh, a few people came and took over that work when we left, mm-hmm. and uh, they had brought in a new recruit, and and even the Africans were saying I was just back on a vacation one time there, and. And, uh, and they said, you know, I said, there's this new guy who we, we don't even know him at all. Like, it's like, what do you mean you don't know him? They said, he's never out here. I think he's only been out to the village like once, maybe, maybe twice. And he's been here for 10 months. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, so I asked the guy that, that, uh, the fir- you know, that, that we kind of oriented to the work. They worked with us for about a year before all their recruits came. Um, I said like, what's up? And he goes, well, you know, he says he wants to work in the, in the village and, you know, develop programs there. But you know, when I call him up, he goes, no, no, you know, he's going to go out to the village and he says, no, I got things to do in the office today or whatever. And, and, and so he would just let him off with that and he'd go and do, do the, do the things in the village. And, and, and I said, Damon, I said, it's too late because it's those early stages when your adventure your enthusiasm is highest. That's the time you have to bond with that local people in that local mm-hmm. place. And if you don't get that bonding at that time, um, very few people ever get it. By, by 10 months, I, I told him, I said, by 10 months, I think it's too late. I think he's going home. He's going to find his excuse. It's not going to be him. It's going to be something that happened or he felt whatever else. And sure enough, when he went home, it was, you know, he got a few leaders together and said, you know, well, I just felt this other guy was blocking me every time I wanted to do something, you know, he wouldn't, and he'd been to the village like twice in 10 months or well, at that this time, it'd be like well over a year. Mm-hmm. And, the, but the, you know, and when I went back another time to teach a, teach a course with them, you know, they were telling me about it. And I said, do you believe that? And I said, really, do you really believe that? I said, if he wanted to do that, were, were you, did you say no to him anytime he came out here? Did he ever ask you to do anything and you said no to him? No, no, he was never out here. And I said, well, you know what the real answer is. Some people come here and they just can't stay. I said, you know, that that's just human life. And they said, yeah, yeah, we know, you know, we, we kind of knew that and, and not a criticism of them, but I, I can remember like you, you little dirty rascal and, and, oh, and hey, Lou too. And he's pointing the finger. Oh yeah. Across the table at this, this, this international worker, my supposed friend across the thing, <laughs> we, we land in the country, uh, we get there on third or, uh, uh, we're down in Abidjan. And then you take us up to the country. Nobody told me about, about armed guards with spike belts across the road, the, the police and holding AK 47s and they pull the spike back for you, belt for you and drive through. And then they pull it back across the road for me. And they're looking at us a little bit and it's like, he just drove through. These guys got AK 47s. Uh, I don't want to just drive through and not stop. They might shoot me, right? And I got my wife and kids in the car. But anyway, we get up to a Bengaru and it was on a Thursday and you had to be in a village on Saturday until Sunday. 
and uh, you called me up mm-hmm. and you didn't say, would you like to come? You said, we're, uh, you called me up and I said, Andy, uh, pack your stuff. Here's what you're going to need. Uh, we're going to the village on Saturday. You, 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 you didn't ask me if I, I wanted to go. Ask. No, to no. You, oh, you know, that's too bad. You didn't mm-hmm. ask me because, because right from the beginning was the expectation that I was there to get out in that bush and do that. And this little adjustment time and, you know, oh, I'll take a month or two months to get my legs. And no, dive. I, I tell people, you just dive in when your enthusiasm and your, your emotional energy is at its peak so that you can process it and, and enjoy it and make friends as quickly as you can. I think that's you, probably true just in ministry in itself. I mean, if people go into a church and they sit in the office all day, rather than diving in to get to know the local community, mm-hmm. they're probably not going to do as well as someone who just gets in there and mm-hmm. starts having fun. Goes to flea markets, chats yeah. up the people. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. great. Well, I think we'll just wrap up this section and uh, and uh, we'll have you back for another I, podcast. I wanted yeah? to say one thing, though, about yeah. the not feeling at home right. in the world. And I think that it happens to servants of God. Mm-hmm. So I think that people that uh, choose to serve God and go leave their home just you know as as many of the early church people did when you leave your home and you go somewhere else and then you realize that your home wasn't quite what you thought it was mm-hmm. and that you really don't fit anywhere that that's actually a very positive sign when i hear that it's like okay this person actually knows that this world is not our home yeah yeah. That we have a kingdom we're waiting for, we're waiting, yeah. and that's our real home. Yeah, and like for me, it's like all of a sudden there's madness that comes into the world, and people for some reason are looking for an excuse just to go nuts. And it's it's mm. it explains Exodus 32 where they, you know, let's have a party and let's cast a... Yeah. It's like, it's just absurd. It's How like that happen? <laughs> yeah, and now you kind of watch it happening mm. in your own life, and you're like wait a second, you know, we are crazy. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely, yeah, I get mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's an encouraging sign. I know it's kind of sad at, when you first realize it, but then when you realize why, it's because you now, you now know that this world is not your, 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 de- your destination. It's not your real home. Yeah. So wherever you are, you're a sojourner. You're here, yeah. you know, yeah. walking with whoever you can walk with during your time, but it's, yeah. 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 In our cultural traditions of where we come from, there's good things, there's bad things. We start to see that the new place we go to, there's, there's, we're exposed mm-hmm. to things. We go, wow, that's so much better in this culture than where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And, but yet there's these other challenging things. And then you sit down and you realize, you know what, uh, God just made this great big colorful cacophony mm-hmm. thing of, of, mm-hmm. of languages and, and ethnic groups or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And, but what really matters is, is not the superiority of my culture or my country or, or the failure, the weakness of the one I'm in, or the or the or, or it's all you know everything's all good there. What it is is we're on a kingdom journey. We're we're, we're our citizenship is there, and that's mm-hmm. what matters most. And mm-hmm. and what a what a great diversity that is is even on this earth as we live it out. But yeah. how much even more special is it going to be when we get to the other side, right? Well, and for people who have never left their culture and never been outside of that box that they grew up in, I think it's a limitation. And so seeing people who know that their home is in heaven and aren't going to be attached, I think it's a witness to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have another, another podcast. Uh, We're just going to take a break and we'll do a part B. And uh, so we'll just wrap up uh, this, this section for now and uh, we'll not burn out Milton 
uh, Milton too much at our table. So uh, anyway, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, you can tune back in for another, another part B later. Are you still here? You must be a real sucker for punishment. Thank you for listening to the Invisible Humanitarian podcast today. Check out our website at theinvisiblehumanitarian.ca or check us out on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us and leave us a good rating on your favorite podcast subscriber. And please, whatever you do, tell all your crazy friends about this podcast.